Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. Hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for stopping by. There was a thousand different ways to die back during the Victorian age, which is considered to be the era of Victoria's reign. Now, not that there ain't a thousand different ways to die today, but back then, people were dropping like flies from virtually all of them. Most of the time, when the poor old wore-out coroner showed up, he didn't know what in the world he was going to find next. Uh, it's thought by many experts nowadays that during that time it was pretty likely that arsenic was used to poison people at near epidemic proportions being that for most of that period it couldn't be detected at autopsy in fact it was referred to on the sly as divorce powder because it sure enough got you a separation from your significant other even though it was done the hard way towards the end of the victorian era the uh, test was finally developed that could detect arsenic and that led to the development of a couple of other things. One was the electric chair for when the arsenic was detected and morphine. Morphine had been developed years earlier to be used for pain and cough relief, but for some reason, about the same time that arsenic could be detected, the popularity of morphine took off like a shot and it was readily available. Isn't that a coincidence? It just so happened that coroners didn't have the toxicology testing to be able, or at the time back then anyway, to be able to detect morphine at lethal levels. And heck, they could barely tell the victim even had been exposed to it at all. So I guess that explains a few things about morphine, don't it? So back in the 1890s, both the electric chair and morphine were used to take lives, but I found this case where uh, you just won't believe what happens. Let me tell you all about it. Sit on back there and take your shoes off and set a spell. It's often been said that a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Or as we say in the mountains, that fella knows about enough to be dangerous. Either way you look at it, What's meant by that is that somebody learned the basics about something and has yet to learn the full implications of what they actually know. An up-and-coming medical student named Carlisle Harris thought that he was pretty clever because that's all he'd ever heard from his family growing up. Obviously, he wasn't raised by a drill sergeant or he wouldn't have that problem, would he? He was born to respectable upper-class parents in Glens Falls, New York in September of 1868. 
which is smack in the Appalachian Mountains, by the way, of New York. He was a medical student by training and a libertine because that's what he wanted to be. A libertine was a word that, uh, of that time used to describe a man that doesn't care for anything God had to say. He knew better, and he treated women like his personal playthings without any feelings toward them or remorse for anything that he did to any of them. Pretty much a cat. In fact, Carlisle Harris, from what I've found, would be considered a sexual predator today and wouldn't have ended up or would have ended up in Attica prison for a long time, well before he got any further today than he got back then. Sounds like he pretty much thought of himself as a Romeo. That's how bad it was. In fact, he once told his friends that he could overcome any woman's scruples. All he had to do was take a bottle of ginger ale and add a great big heap of whiskey to it and kind of loosen things up. If that didn't work, he'd marry her under somebody else's name. Then after the honeymoon, make a run for it, leaving everybody involved, holding a big bag of jack squat with somebody else's name on it. The deviant was smart, though. He was studying at New York's prestigious College of Physicians and Surgeons. You'd think having a workload like that, it would slow him down a mite. And all it did manage to do was give him access to more women and, of course, their morphine, which he wasn't above using to have his way with them. Marriage hadn't improved his attitude either. His wife Helen thought the world of him, most likely because she didn't have any idea in the world that she'd married Mephistopheles himself. Her family saw through him like he was standing in front of an x-ray machine naked as a jaybird. Helen ignored them all, though. You know, they tried to talk to her, but she married him anyway. It seemed like the more their family hated him, the more she liked him. That's the way it usually works when teenagers go through the rebellious period. As far as they're concerned, parents are the dumbest thing since Franz Reichert came up with the parachute jacket and plunged to his death off the Eiffel Tower, swearing to everybody that any that would listen to him that it was going to work because he made it himself. Yeah. At this point, you got it, folks. It ain't going to work well for either one of them. Yeah. Young Mr. Harris liked to be seen as a young, highly educated, respectable young man about town with just a scotch of lady killer stirred in for good measure. Truth be known, he was a dark-minded, cynical, and ruthless person who exploited about everybody he come across, especially women. He was more interested in adding notches to his bedpost than how much money he could get out of his on his hands or in his hands than he was actually becoming a doctor, which he was very close to doing, and which is downright scary. The little weasel had expensive taste for somebody who hadn't yet attained a status that he apparently thought he had already, but and it was determined to keep his image plumb to the last drop of anybody else's blood, sweat, and tears that he had to spend to do it. And on February 1st of 1891, his wife Helen was found stretched out in her bed, disoriented in a room at Comstock Finishing School. Unfortunately for her, Helen was a nice, decent young lady. She was exactly the type of person who fit Comstock's mold. She was to attend the school before debuting in the New York Society circuit. So when she was found in that condition, they immediately called doctors who first thought that she'd suffered some kind of stroke. And by the time they got, got there, she was incoherent and muttering something that nobody could understand. Despite every, everything that the doctors could do, she was dead in just a few hours. 
Certainly a sudden stroke or aneurysm was tragic for anybody who hadn't got past her 19th birthday, but at the time it wasn't all that uncommon and was, you know, the doctor's initial diagnosis. And, of course, it was a completely unsuspicious way to die at the time. Back then, at the rate folks were dropping over, there wasn't much time for second-guessing a doctor's diagnosis either. But in this case, it didn't take them long to throw that diagnosis on the trash heap. By then, there were three doctors in the room, and they decided to give Helen's body a good examination before they signed off on the death certificate. That's when they noticed something odd for a stroke victim. When they looked into her eyes, what they saw was staring them right back in the face. Normally, and I've seen it firsthand, a stroke victim's pupils would be dilated and in most cases uneven. Helen's pupils were pinpointed, which was typical of something they'd all seen before, and it wasn't a stroke. It was morphine poisoning. The first thing they were going to have to do was try to confirm that she had actually died of morphine overdose. Today's toxicologists can knock that out in a few hours. Back in 1891, toxicology wasn't near good enough to do that yet. Even proving the presence of morphine in a murder victim's body was very hard, if not impossible, to do. And guess who knew that? That's right, Carlisle Harris. He, being a med student and all, probably picked morphine for just that reason. He apparently thought that he was smart enough to come up with the perfect murder. He wasn't smart enough to understand, though, that the perfect murder actually goes unseen, unnoticed, and unsolved. And if it looked like an accident, suicide, or some kind of illness, nobody would even investigate it. Apparently, something happened somewhere along the line to cause her to take too much morphine. Why in the world would somebody poison a 19-year-old married finishing school student of all people? Well, that was the good question on the line there at the time. Carlisle had met 18-year-old Helen Potts at Ocean Grove in 1889, and they were instantly attracted to each other. Of course, he being the walking train wreck that he was, thoroughly enjoyed the company of respectable, well-mannered young women. And that's exactly what Helen was. She was head over heels about who she thought was a decent, respectable young med student. As we said before, he was about anything that you could think of but decent and respectable. It wasn't long before the snake in the grass proposed marriage to her. Helen was over the moon about becoming Mrs. Harris, but her parents, well, they were just a mite skeptical as to how a med student was going to support her daughter. So they wouldn't give it their blessings. Carlisle and Helen were both disappointed because even though they didn't really need their parents' permission, it certainly presented a problem. The problem being that Helen was from an upper crust of the upper class family who controlled their image right down to how to hold your mouth in public. Running off and getting married was something they thought about, but not that Carlisle gave a rip. That wouldn't, that would actually embarrass their parents and to no end, so they nixed the idea of running off, at least that part of it, and opted for a secret wedding, which was pretty much right up Carlisle's alley because he now had marriage rights to a wealthy family's daughter and all the other advantages that come with marriage as well, and he just had to enjoy them in the secret, which actually fit his lifestyle to a T. Now, their secret marriage ceremony, which, by the way, turned out to be a fraud, was held on March, February 8, 1890. The reason it was a fraud was that Helen 
used a fake name. Helen Potts became Helen Nielsen, and Carlisle Harris became Charles Harris for the blessed occasion. Now, Helen Nielsen and Charles Harris had practiced just how exactly they was going to pull it off, and it was a resounding success, at least for a little while. In August of 1890, long about the time William Kemmler was inaugurating Auburn Prison's electric chair as the first man to die in one, Helen's mother found out about the whole thing. Helen got sick from an infection that she got from an operation. Back then, it was called septic poisoning. Uh, Come to find out, she'd went through a series of secret operations performed by none other than the sick, twisted little Carlisle Harris. Sounds to me a lot like he was using Helen as a guinea pig, don't it? But uh, due to the type of pain she was having, it was thought that the operations were illegal abortions. Carlisle, who wasn't any more qualified to do surgery than I am, still thought that he was a gifted surgeon. When her constant pain and suffering got to be so bad that she thought she might not make it, she told her uncle about the whole marriage thing. Of course, he went straight to her mother and spilled his guts. Didn't take long for that to run through the Potts and Harris families and then all across the entire countryside. Despite all of that, or heck, maybe because of it, (laughs) they still weren't actually living together. Carlisle had his own house, but he was the one that talked Helen's mother into sending her to Comstock finishing school to start with. And just like the upper crust of our society used to do, in order to keep things within the proper scope as they saw it, The couple needed to be properly introduced to the New York society circuit, and their wackadoodle marriage status had to be somehow smoothed over. That plan went out the window when Helen died. Less than a year after their wedding, the bride was dead, and her husband was being looked at real hard for her murder. Helen's murder was, or Helen's mother, I'm sorry, was walking the floors with more worry over explaining it than actually putting Carlisle away for it. Of course, he used that to his advantage, too, by being able to stave off the investigation a little bit. Carlisle, being the smartest guy in any room anywhere, had been pretty wily about it all, but not near wily enough. Helen had been suffering from insomnia and pain from Carlisle's practice surgeries, and she asked him to get her something to help her sleep because it was driving her crazy, and he was more than happy to oblige. The maniac gave her six capsules, which back then were fairly new inventions, and he'd he'd allegedly lifted them from the teaching hospital's pharmacy. He told Helen to take one every day with a drink of water. If he was truly intent on killing her, the trap was then set. All he had to do was go be Carlisle Harris until Helen sprang it. If she died, nobody would know about what he'd been doing to her, and much less possibly doing it to get rid of a child that he had gave her word wouldn't get out and they'd been married either and soil his lady killer reputation and he could ease right back into his life of being the monster that he was he thought that if maybe the word of his marriage did happen to get out it might not be all that bad he could probably exploit that too because women would be more sympathetic to a young widower (sighs) one thing he did know was that If Helen lived on, she was going to be a burden, and on top of that, might actually tell people what he'd done to her, whether he actually meant to or she meant to tell anybody or not. That would completely destroy his reputation. Of course, back then, a young gentleman's reputation was his ticket to wealth and success. If it got out that he'd been cutting on Helen, he'd be 
personally and professionally ruined, and it wouldn't matter if he graduated from the best med school in the country. He was going to be done. Carlisle knew where Helen kept her capsules, and he knew where to get morphine and how hard it was to detect. He also knew that he needed to look just to the right amount of shocked and surprised when his wife accidentally died. Normally, psychopaths study other people just to learn how they do that because no matter how hard they try, they actually couldn't care less about somebody. With that in mind, he slid into the on the sly and doctored up the morphine capsules, or one of them, and he slipped the lethal, lethal do- dose of morphine into one of them. All he had to do was, back then, you could just pull them apart and just pour the morphine powder in. He didn't even need to know when she'd take it. Once she did, he just accused the hospital pharmacist of screwing up the prescription that he actually didn't even have the authority to write in the first place. And that's what killed his wife. Just like any poor husband would would accuse somebody of and, you know, out of the shock of losing their wives. I guess we could call that Romeo's Russian roulette, couldn't we? It didn't surprise me to learn that Helen's mother was immediately suspicious and demanded a full investigation. Well, once morphine became the likely cause of her daughter's death, Dr. Alan Hamilton and Professor Rudolph Whithouse proved it scientifically using a new polygraphy test. That was done by getting samples of tissue from Helen's body, putting them in a test tube, and adding a chemical which would turn purple and then red if morphine was present. And count on that one, did you, Carlisle? On March 23, 1891, Carlisle was cuffed and stuffed after a grand jury indicted him for first-degree murder. His trial started on January 19, 1892, with the Honorable Recorder Smith presiding. Of course, his parents had retained supposedly one of the best lawyers in the state named William Howe, who had just unsuccessfully defended Harry Carlton in his murder trial, leaving him standing in the courtroom holding his paperwork for his personal date with old Sparky. William Howe didn't look back as he took Carlisle Harris' case and the Harris money and moved on. After all, a lawyer gotta eat, and business is business. Assistant District Attorney Charles Sims, Jr., led the prosecution. Society reporters and gossip colonists had a field day with it all, like the press likes to do when there's stories of Carlisle Harris's womanizing and carousing, along with his double life, the secret fraudulent wedding, morphine, and murder lit up the front pages all across the country here. I bet old Romeo wished that he could just crawl under the table by the time they were done, to ice the cake with it. What was a capital murder case, which meant Carlisle was going to ride the lightning if Auburn State Prison if he was convicted. On February 2nd, 1892, after dragging it out as long as they could to make sure both sides was heard, the case went to the jury. After deliberating for a long, drawn-out, antagonizing 80 minutes, the jury returned the verdict, guilty as charged and with no recommendation for murder or mercy. The, uh, prosecution's case, especially the forensic evidence of Dr. Hamilton and Professor Whithouse, had been overwhelming. With no recommendation for murder, mercy, I keep saying murder, no no recommendation for mercy, Judge Recorder Smith could only pass one sentence, and that was death. Carlisle was immediately pounced on and dragged off to Sing Sing Prison so fast that it made his head swim. He was there to get in line to meet old Sparky. But, 
not before January of 1893 when Carlisle's appeal was heard. The judge thought it over for a few seconds, then laughed it out of court. His lawyers then went before Judge Smith again and argued for a new trial. They had what they said was new evidence and hadn't been presented at Carlisle's trial. The judge, that's when Judge Smith denied the request as well on March 16th. Then on March 20th, the judge set a new date for Carlisle to meet his maker. It was May 8th, 1893, and when he was to get up close and personal with old Sparky. Governor Waswell Flower was the only hope that Carlisle had left. His lawyer bombarded Governor Flower with requests for clemency, as did many letters sent from all over the nation. The pressure did force the governor into ordering a special commission to review the case, but they refused to recommend mercy. Without the commission's recommendation, Governor Flowers told Carlisle's lawyer that he wasn't about to touch this with a 10-foot pole. So, as soon as the sun just started to peep up and dawn showed on May 8, 1893, Carlisle walked into Sing Sing's death chamber before an audience of reporters and prison officials. And he stood there with a straight face and denied the whole thing. I reckon he thought that maybe somebody would listen and get him out of it at the last minute. Most psychopaths think that they're going to get out of it even a few minutes after they've been declared dead. But state electrician Edwin Davis waited for the signal from Warden Charles Durston, who supervised William Kemmler's execution, which was one of the most botched, messy executions in history, and had taken over at Sing Sing only a few days earlier. So Warden Durston, after seeing the mess made of William Kemmler's execution, lifted his trembling hand and gave the signal to Mr. Davis, the whole time wondering if it was going to be in any way better than the one that Mr. Kemmler had. So Mr. Davis reached up through the switch and fired up the dynamo, and Carlisle Harris kissed the world goodbye. Folks, we're nowhere near done. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, you'd think that something like that would be a beacon of warning for all who would consider doing anything else like that from then on, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would too, but there's always that one person that sees the mistake made by the one who got caught and wonders how in the world they could be so dumb as to allow themselves to be found out by doing something incredibly stupid. But that's where we meet our next contestant of the day in electrocution sweepstakes because he directly relates to the first numbskull we talked about. Enter Dr. Robert Buchanan. Now, he wasn't a fine, upstanding young man with the monster trying to get out of him at first, at least not yet. Dr. Buchanan had actually put forth the effort to finish medical school and his training, too. Now, when Carlisle Harris went in trial for his life, the good Dr. Buchanan who was born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains of Nova Scotia, Canada, was running a successful New York City medical practice. And because of that, he developed quite the expensive taste. And like so often happens, didn't take long before he was a rampant womanizer. Of course, he didn't care who the woman was, and in fact, preferred brothels and bordellos to any impressionable young lady from the upper crust of society. That fact that he was married and that actually 
was a legal marriage, had absolutely nothing to slow him down either, and he just whined women in song all night long, every night, all night. Now, we realize that you might sure enough be a doctor making a killing on a daily basis, but you can't keep spending it like it's going out of style faster than you can make it, or you're going to end up in trouble. Dr. Buchanan turned into a barroom blowhard on top of all that. He loved nothing more than sitting there with getting a snoot full, looking down his nose at about anybody he thought was below him, which included about anybody he came across. He loved following the Carlisle Harris trial. He loved sitting in his place on the bar, talking to anybody who'd listen, telling them what a, that Carlisle Harris was a stupid amateur and a bungling fool, in his opinion. Any half-competent killer, especially one with any medical training whatsoever, would have known pinpoint pupils were a cardinal sign of morphine poisoning. Um, with that obvious warning staring him right in the face, he said that any real doctor would immediately make the right diagnosis. Any real murderer would have known how to hide something that obvious. Why, folks, if Carlisle had been as smart as Dr. Buchanan, he would have put a drop or two of atrophine in Helen Potts' eyes to dilate them back out. Then he probably would have got away with it. As far as Dr. Buchanan was concerned, the sooner they killed somebody that stupid, the sooner there'd be one less wart on the ass of society dragging us all down with them. So, of course, he never failed to deliver his I'm smarter than Carlisle Harris speech to anybody and everybody that he could back into a corner and give it to. For somebody that smart, he sure never thought that his little barroom tirades would come back and bite him square on his ass along the, with the ghost of his second wife, Anna. Uh, she was Anna Southern before she married Dr. Buchanan, which came shortly after he ran his first marriage into the ground over infidelity and financial destruction. Now, Anna was more his speed now, being that she was he was too cool for settling down with a nice, calm, faithful woman. Anna was a madam of his favorite brothel, and she was known for her foul mouth, which had an insatiable taste for hard liquor. Dr. Buchanan had met her during his nightly jaunts through the bordellos of downtown New York. Anna had grown tired of Annie, or not Anna, but uh, the doctor had grown tired of Annie. His first wife, who, uh, for God only knows what reason, remained faithful to him no matter what he did. Finally, in 1891, he divorced Annie and then turned right around and married Anna. He <clears throat> then gave her the job as his receptionist at his medical practice. For a man with expensive taste and supposedly the smartest mind in the world, he sure screwed the pooch on that one. His patients didn't take kindly to him leaving his respectable wife for a continually drunk, foul-mouthed brothel madam. They took it even worse having to be seen talking to her when they came in for an appointment. Before long, fewer and fewer patients were showing up and the good doctor's business was circling the drain. The wheels were coming off and they were coming off fast. Folks, the social standards of the day back then dictated that debauchery of that kind needed to be discreet and kept strictly as a private affair. Men only, never women, could conduct any type of nefarious activities that floated their boats as long as they kept it hid. Dr. Buchanan thought that everybody passing judgment on him was just ignorant plebes, even if they were his paying customers. He eventually became downright defiant with everybody, which just made the whole thing worse. Now that his business was in a slump, the high life was destroying his finances. So with everything being dashed on the, to bits on the rocks of life, Dr. Buchanan didn't 
figure he ought to slow down a, a mite. He, instead, he started sizing up his wife's financial situation. And it looked a whole lot better than his did because she never stopped running the brothel. And folks, by that time, she was making more in a day than he was making in a week. The way that he figured it, if something were to befall his wife and she woke up dead, he'd be rid of the unending air pipe of embarrassment she'd backpacked into his life like she was going camping somewhere. And it didn't hurt anything that she had about $50,000 that he could inherit for that if that happened. Folks, that's over $1.6 million in today's money. Didn't take him long to find the chance to kill two birds with one stone, so to say, in the form of his wife with morphine po poisoning. So, on March 26, 1892, Anna Buchanan suddenly dropped over colder than a wet catfish. And just Helen Potts' um, doctors <clears throat> first thought that she had a stroke too. Uh, after all, Anna didn't have a pinpoint pupils that would have caused suspicion that would need an investigation. So without the eyes being pinpointed, there wasn't anything unusual to see. And Dr. Buchanan, being a fellow physician, her doctors had declared that nothing was wrong. It was a stroke. Anna's friends weren't buying it, though. They were suspicious right off the bat. It gets even worse when the good Dr. Buchanan stuffed his pockets full of her entire estate, then turned right around and made another incredibly stupid decision. Just three weeks after the death of his second wife, he came out of mourning and remarried Annie, his first wife. The former Mrs. Buchanan had become the current Mrs. Buchanan again, and the remarriage made every single one of Anna's friends madder than a hornet. Worse yet was when New York World reporter Ike White showed up because he'd heard some chatter that there just might be a little more going on here than a stroke. So he decided to take a closer look at Dr. Buchanan. It didn't take long for Mr. White to find out about Anna's shady relationship with Dr. Buchanan and how it manifested into full-blown marriage after he threw his loving, faithful wife on the compost pile like a trash. Uh, or... It didn't take him long either to find out about Dr. Buchanan's inheritance when Anna died, along with his speedy remarriage to his wife Annie. It wasn't long after that that he dug up something that's even worse and more embarrassing to the doctor, and that was Dr. Buchanan's nightly trawling of the New York City sex dens. But then came the mad dog that tore the seat right out of Dr. Buchanan's pants in the form of Dr. Buchanan's nightly Carlisle Harris's an idiot speeches. After he learned about that, Mr. White demanded that Anna's body be exhumed for autopsy. Dr. Buchanan had to be sweating bullets by then and had good reason for it. When she died, he could have had her cremated, which would have destroyed any evidence of morphine poison, but back then it was cheaper to have her buried. And that's what he did because he can't be spending any of that $1.6 on unnecessary stuff. Besides, he had another wedding to pay for. That's when Professor Whithouse, and you remember him from the Carlisle Harris case, came riding into town like a Texas Ranger looking for Black Bart. It seemed that Dr. Buchanan hadn't been quite as swift as he thought he was. Professor Whithouse broke out the polygraphy test and found one-tenth of a grain of morphine, and that led to probably the residue of five or six grains. Five or six grains was enough to kill about anybody who hadn't built up a tolerance to opiates and most...
Dr. Whithouse wasn't done yet. He tested Anna's eyes for atropine and found that too. Dr. Robert McCannon was immediately arrested and charged with first-degree murder and was in jail awaiting trial before he could even thank Grabby's hat and put it on. His trial opened on March 20th, 1893, and earlier that day, Judge Recorder Smith had just signed Carlisle Harris's paperwork, setting his death date. Now being fresh off that and still carrying the same ink pen, he was ready to listen to Dr. Robert Buchanan whine about his innocence. It was another all-out feeding frenzy for the press. I imagine by then people all over the country were wondering just what was in the water in New York City. And uh, heck, it probably was morphine for all I could figure. Carlisle Harris's trial had been all about the victim's pinpoint pupils. Dr. Buchanan's trial entered forensic criminal history because Professor Whithouse proved every word of Dr. Buchanan's Carlisle Harris's stupid speech to be true. For a man who was right up right all the time, I bet Dr. Buchanan probably wished that he would have been wrong for the first time in his life right about now. Once entered into evidence alongside the witness testimony of his barroom presentations, his own loud mouth was pretty much hard to overlook. His lawyers pretty much called Professor Whithouse a quack and claimed that anybody could claim anything and what he said didn't prove anything. That's when Professor Whithouse dragged in a stray cat and killed it with morphine right in the courtroom in front of everybody. After he did that, he invited the whole courtroom to come up and watch as he dripped atropine into the poor cat's eyes. Its eyes, sure enough, contracted from the morphine overdose, but once the atropine went in, they dilated right back out to normal. I imagine at that point, he asked Dr. Buchanan, how do you like me now? And about as much as anything else, Professor Wethouse's test and Dr. Buchanan's own mouth got him convicted. On April 26, the jury announced he was guilty of first-degree murder, had no more love for him than did Carlisle Harris because it came with no recommendation for mercy. State electrician Edwin Davis, who was probably the, on the list for rotator cuff surgery for yanking the switch of the electric chair so much, now had another name on the list. The date of the good doctor's conviction came exactly one year to the day after his wife Anna had received her fatal dose of morphine. Sometimes justice just hits perfect, don't it? Of course, the usual appeals are filed and, <clears throat> as usually laughed out, usually they are, laughed out of court. Meanwhile, at Sing Sing, all Dr. Buchanan could do was stare out the bar-covered window and wait for somebody to do something and every failed appeal put him just a step further down the same path as the man he thought was a moron, Carlisle Harris. When, on, <clears throat> when he walked into death row in the cells there at Sing Sing, he was probably about as embarrassed as he could get to come face to face with the very man that he called a stupid amateur and a bungling fool. Dr. Buchanan had got his first laugh, but uh, Carlisle Harris was having the last and longest. He, his only problem was that he didn't have a whole lot of time left to really rub it in. It just so happened that Carlisle was an only a cell or two away from Dr. Buchanan and only had to put up with him for a short time before he paid for murdering Helen Potts on May 8th, shortly after Dr. Buchanan got there, which was probably a relief after having to listen to him wax eloquent for hours on end. He might have felt a little satisfaction in the fact that even a real doctor couldn't pull it off. Either way, Carlisle Harris was marched past Dr. Buchanan's cell as he went to the death chamber. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall and seen that? 
I imagine Carlisle probably needed a good laugh about that time, wouldn't you? At that point, Dr. McCannon thought that the courts would either find reason to cut him loose or the governor would step in and stop it all. After all, what good is it going to do anybody to kill a perfectly good doctor with his standing and experience? But the court found that he'd received a fair trial and the groundbreaking evidence provided by Professor Wethouse had borne more than enough to justify his conviction. Of course, his arrogant, sneering behavior at the trial didn't help him any. The great state of New York had something brand spanking new, and they intended to justify its existence by using it as much as they could. In other words, electric chairs ain't cheap, and we intend to get our money's worth out of it. So it just so happened that Dr. Buchanan and Carlisle Harris showed up on death row at the worst time they possibly could for any prisoner sentenced to death and still hoping maybe it'll get a little mercy from somebody. At one point, New York was dragging two or three a day into the rooms for a date with old Sparky. By the time Dr. Buchanan and his legal team tried to talk some sense into the governor and make him see that it was all a stupid mistake, on the state's part, of course, Dr. Flowers had been replaced by Governor Levi Morton, and Governor Levi Morton just wasn't in the mood for any sense talking. On July 1st, 1895, and still yet convinced to the better end that Governor Morton, who was well below him in intelligence meter, was fixing to come to his senses and give him clemency. Dr. Buchanan was strapped into the electric chair when Warden Omar Sage arrived just before the switch was thrown by Edwin Davis, who was probably back from his shoulder surgery and ready to go. Dr. Buchanan survived the first two-minute jolt, but once the second one was applied, that got the job done. After his autopsy, the first and third Mrs. Buchanan arrived to claim his body, but didn't have the money to make the arrangements because Dr. Buchanan had pretty much ran through it all trying to get out of the murder charge. Warden Sage saw how tore up the poor woman was. Nobody really knows why. Annie, after all he did to her, still loved Dr. Buchanan like she did, so Warden Sage asked for contributions from most of the officials and witnesses who saw the execution. While they had no love for Dr. Buchanan, they had plenty for his poor widow. With the money they took up, Annie Buchanan and her had her husband's remains taken back to the undertakers in New York City where she viewed his body for the last time and absolutely fell apart. Lawyer George Gibbons and the undertaker tried to escort her away, but she refused to be separated from her husband. She had to pretty much be carried away because of the grief. I'd say that it was about that time that the ghost Carlisle Harris was laughing as Dr. Buchanan's ghost walked into wherever they both wound up. I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that needed to be told. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to to subscribe or follow us, please, on whatever you're listening on. Come on, join us over on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk about everything Appalachian or whatever else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I will see you then.